Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Hey, Noah. How are you? I am. I'm doing great. Better than I deserve, as Dave Ramsey would say. <laughs> yeah. You know what? It got to be 10 degrees Celsius here or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, that was shorts and uh, cutoff weather. I was outside and it was fantastic. But you're used to the colder weather, though, right? Because, I mean, you had that in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. So th- this is nice. Even my wife was like, it's beautiful. And she's we've got all the windows and doors open today. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. I tell you what, it's been appreciated on our end because the uh, the energy bills have been crazy, and I think part of that is with the whole Texas thing. Over the last year, they've you know shifted all the costs and all the things around, um, and so, or at least my energy company tells me that's what I'm paying extra money for. Um, so yeah, yep, we're we're happy for we're happy to be able to ease off on our heating bill too. This will be the first, uh, really kind of the first opportunity you've had to be outdoors, right? Because you've, I mean, you, you, you moved, but then almost immediately after it moved, it kind of so- it snowed. Well, we moved back in July, so we were, we've been... Yeah, like one month. Yeah, well, we, we were here August, like for all of August, and uh, it, was, it was quite warm, I'd say. And then things, you know, the temperature kind of fell off a cliff, but that's pretty normal. <laughs> That's to be expected in the Dakotas. Our first email comes in from James. James writes in and says, hey, Noah, I know that you have a lot of people asking about self-hosted email solutions. So I figured I'll share what I'm using as I haven't heard it mentioned yet. I'm using a Docker package called, Ma- no, oh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Maulu. I would assume it's MailU. MailU. That's a way more logical pronunciation for a self-hosted mail client, Steve. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) MailU, which joins common email services and spam solutions into an easy-to-install and maintain container. I use it in combination with a mail relay to send email from a server at my house. Kind regards, James. So, not... I've not heard of MailU before, but you can learn more at MailU.io. You know, it's funny. I feel like to a degree, we went and said, hey, you should not host yourself. You should not self-host email. It's probably more work than it's worth. And what we got back was hold my beer and watch this. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. I still think that um, there's a lot of caveats like I so I was talking about how we have a common carrier in, in Canada who basically owns all the lines for a certain type of internet connection and all of their IPs are blacklisted. So it becomes very difficult to run anything out of your house. You can you can receive email, but nobody's going to get it. Hmm. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. I, is, do you think that situation is different if you don't have those kinds of ISP restrictions? Like let's say you have, you, I mean, you have the ability to spin up on a DigitalOcean droplet or maybe you have a decent internet connection at your house. It's it's dicey. I had the same uh, IP on DigitalOcean for, I don't know, seven years or something like that. And so it was long enough that I, I kind of established my own trail and was able to get off some blacklists and stuff like that. But there were still times where I'd be in spam or or whatever. So it was one of those things where if I, it was a super critical email, I still dropped back to Gmail um, to make sure that they were getting it. Our second email comes in from Stephen. Stephen writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I want to start by saying I love the show. I really enjoy listening to both of you dissect the different topics, and you guys have definitely given me some ideas for when I will eventually have my own home lab. On to my issue. I really want to like Plasma as a desktop. I have tried to use Plasma more times than I care to remember. Currently, the only reason I'm not using Plasma as my daily driver is because Dolphin doesn't handle SMB mounts in what I would consider to be a sane way. One of my laptops regularly mounts a Windows share for different media hosted on it. 
But when I try to drag the file into VLC, VLC doesn't play it, and it views it as a networked source, even when I add the field to use it as an open dial, even when I add a field using the open file dialog in VLC. It brings the file to a network source. The problem there is these sources are usually not playable, and it seems to be random and not even by file, but by the name of the file. Now, I would prefer the functionality similar to what I have with Thunar on XFCE, where if I mount an SMB share, it's actually mounted on the file system. I think it's somewhere in slash run, but Plasma doesn't seem to have this. Uh, It does not seem to have this functionality for SMB, but curiously, it works fine for SFTP sources. I would prefer it if I didn't have to mount Samba shares from the terminal or FSTAP. I have tried going into the advanced preferences in VLC and adding a username and password into the input codecs and the access modules DSM, but it looks like it doesn't work. I'm running into a Plasma. Uh, I'm, I'm, I am running Plasma on Endeavor OS. Any help or pointers would be appreciated. Thank you. So a couple of things. I have also been bit by this in, in, uh, in, in, in Dolphin on KDE. Now, to be fair, I'm not entirely sure if that's a Dolphin thing, uh, or if that's just the underlying Kubuntu system, the way that it handles SMP. I guess it's mounting in, in Dolphin. It probably is a, a function of Dolphin. But where where I've had it bite me numerous times is I will go into a client and I'll go to update their documentation or reference their documentation, which happens to be stored on a Samba share. And if I make a change, and this happens with KeyPass databases too, you make a change, you go to save it, it will render a message and say, hey, this file already exists at this location. Do you want to overwrite it? And then you re-upload a, an entirely new copy on uh, to the Samba share rather than editing it, quote-unquote, locally. So I guess, Steve, l- let me ask some, some basic questions. What is, what, what, what is the preferred method for mounting a, a Samba share on most Linux distributions? So I guess this would be a preference as opposed to anything else, but I really... I tend to use GVFS. So this is something that gets built into, I think Thunder, 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 however you pronounce it, uses this as well. But but for sure, um, Nautilus does. And Nautilus has been using this for years. So this is why, this is how that magic works in on top of the GNOME desktop, right? So when you when you mount a, a Samba share via Nautilus, it does go into slash run or some other temporary location via GVFS. And so um, I would imagine you should still be able to use the same functionality inside of KDE, regardless of which um, file browser that you're using. But I don't actually know. I guess Dolphin would have to support that. So I guess that would be what I would say. I also don't prefer to have tons of Samba mounts they're kind of chatty and then if they break they delay your boot and they can you know delay your shutdown if they don't unmount cleanly and all the rest of that you're so, talking about putting them in stub yeah basically because we you the question was what what should you like how should you mount yeah. these things right so um i tend to use if i'm going to mount something permanently i actually really like the system d mount so i use in my f stab or fs tab um, I actually use the system D mounts for anything over the network. Um, it it's kind of similar for me. It took the, over AutoFS, what AutoFS used to do, um, but I find that system D does a much better job of kind of handling uh, doing the dynamic mounts. So I have my Pac-Man cache, for example, mounted over NFS for all of the people in the house, so they all share the same cache, and it and that's done kind of dynamically it doesn't mount until you actually go to use the directory so i th- and i think you said this i I'm, i might have missed it so you're using that for nfs but you're saying it would work with samba as well it should work with samba as well because it's just a, an auto like it's a system d auto mount feature so um it's actually inside of the mount options i haven't looked in to see if it actually works with samba but i i can't imagine it wouldn't so Linux Ninja in the chat room has uh, links to SMB4K. It's a graphical user interface for Samba. It's available in the Arch repos. Well, presumably for, hopefully, I guess, available for other distros as well. But um, it's an advanced network neighborhood browser that allows share mounting uh, and and runs on the KDE framework. So that might be an option if you're looking to mount specifically 
uh, in KDE. I, I wonder, Steve, if you used a different file manager or if you if there's a way to manually tell it to use GVFS and then expose that share in Dolphin or whatever file manager he wants to use. Well, because of all the magic that happens inside of, of Nautilus, I don't actually know how it works on the back end. I just know that um, if I go to browse, say, the Samba share and I don't have the GVFS for Samba installed, I just install it and then things magically work in the in the browser, in the file browser as I expect it to. Our third email comes in from Ryan. Ryan writes in and says, I'm trying to run BrickCAD on Manjaro KDE. The version in the AUR is a version behind, but it wouldn't work anyway. Fortunately, they offer a Linux downloads in the form of deb, RPM, and tar.gz. I've downloaded the tar.gz, extracted it, and then tried to run the BrickCAD.sh. I get a blank window, and my terminal output is, and then he lists the terminal output. I have found that if I try to run it as root, the application will run. I don't know what the problem is trying to run it as a normal user, but I really don't want to have it run as root. Thanks in advance. Ryan. Um, so I guess let's start here, Steve. Do you have any ideas of why the AUR package might not be working? So at, when I checked on the AUR package today when I was viewing this, it actually has a, a malformed URL. So instead of actually giving a URL, it has file colon slash slash and then the file name so the person that built this had already downloaded the rpm and so the if you don't have this wherever your aur is running temporarily it's going to bail because the the file the url is not formed for someone who doesn't have the packet locally so you could go in and tinker around and try and fix that yourself um, as for this issue where um, you get a blank window there's a couple of things that this could be. Um, I note from the output that that there's Wayland being used here. And so I wonder whether Wayland is not, is some of the security stuff inside of Wayland is actually preventing this because I've definitely seen that with some of the legacy applications. So um, I might I might look to see if you installed X side by side just to see if it would run because that would that would at least tell you whether Wayland is getting in the way there, there could be any number of other things. Like there's a bunch of troubleshooting you'd have to do. Uh, for example, you could launch S-Trace while you're running it to see what calls it's actually making because maybe there is a call that it needs to make with elevated privileges. So there's there could be all kinds of trickery that, that might need to happen to make this work properly. It's my favorite part about the Linux community. So as we're taking that question, Linux Ninja in the chat room says, hey, what's the AOR package? I'll get it fixed. So uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we'll, we'll just go ahead. We'll say uh, closed circuit to Ryan. Um, if you can't get it to, if you can't get the tar.gz uh, to work, um, don't worry. Uh, somebody's working on it and will be resolved momentarily. How's that for service? That's pretty good. Hey, you can join the conversation. 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. We'll take your questions live on the air. We'll answer them uh, in the order that they're received. Callers always go to the front of the line. John joins us from California. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. So I'm setting up my first NAS, and um, it's exciting, but then I'm like, well, I need to back it up. And I'm like, well, if a NAS is bigger than a basic hard disk, do I have to buy another NAS in order to back up the NAS, which is expensive and sounds unaffordable? So what's my other ways of backing up a NAS that it doesn't cost an arm and a leg? How big is your data set? Uh, initially, it will be 20 terabytes, which there is an 18-terabyte drive out there that you could buy. But, I mean, I'm thinking through the future, like, if I expand the NAS to be more than 20 terabytes, then I don't have a single drive that can hold all the data and mm. back up. What type of files are you? Are they video files? Are they audio files? Are they, um, like, what type of files are you talking about? A mix, of, a, mix of, a mix of everything. I got pictures from phones and stuff syncing up to it. I got media files from for Plex. I've got, I got, MP3s from decades of collection, so and you know everyday files from documents and stuff. So you can. There's a couple of things you the could try. So is the media files. 
Yeah, the media files are, are definitely tricky. Uh, they tend to take up a lot of space. So um, I solve this in a couple of ways myself. I don't have a second NAS. I have two different hard drives that I, I keep like on the shelf and I pull them off once a month and go plug them in. So that way, you know, if I get electrical shock throughout the house or whatever, I don't literally lose my backups as, as well as my NAS. So I keep them unplugged. So you could go that route. The other thing that you can do is start thinking about what is the most critical things and just backing those off. And the third thing you could do is use a file system that has compression. So uh, ButterFS, B3FS, however you'd like to call it, ZFS, they all have compression. And while some of the media files won't compress down that well, uh, even if you get 10 or 20% back with that large of a data set can actually make a significant impact on how much you're able to store. So I would I'd dovetail onto that a couple of things for you, John. So first of all, I would concentrate on the size of your data, not the size of the array. So to so like you have a 20 terabyte array, but if you're only using, and I'm just going to make up numbers here for an example, if you're only using four terabytes of storage, then I would concentrate today on backing up four terabytes of storage. And when your data set grows uh, higher than the, the capacity that your backup can uh, can handle, that's when I would start looking at some other solutions or look at them today and just have a plan. Um, one of the, so there's, the, the, the way I do it at my house, I have a box uh, from a company by the name of Mediasonic. And essentially what they create is a four bay hard drive enclosure that supports eSATA. And so what I do is it sits in a Pelican case and once a month, it comes home and the eSATA port is connected and then I just use LVM on top. So the the the, the, the Mediasonic box doesn't do anything special. It doesn't do RAID. It has no real controller. It's basically just connects four hard drives to the system. And then I use LVM to combine all of those into one big logical drive and then store the data on there. Um, and so, you know, do I have a second NAS? Not really, because I really just have the four drives inside of an enclosure but it allows me to accomplish the same thing that I would have if I was duplicating the NAS. But the, 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 the hard truth of, of the challenge that you're up against is if you want to be sure that that data is safe, it needs to reside in three places, which means if you have, once you exceed the, the, the data capacity of a single drive, yeah, you are going to have to duplicate that storage array three different times in some form or another. The good news is I don't think there's a huge advantage to using hardware solutions to do that anymore. You can just as effectively combine a bunch of drives with LVM or even ZFS. I probably would caution against LVM um, because if you're not having some form of parity, that means that if one of those heads goes wonky, you can lose your kind of your entire set underneath of it. Um, but I definitely would start off by classifying your data as so I have I have what I call important data. Then there's the I can't lose this data, and then there's the it would suck if I lose this data kind of mm. classification. And so the I can't lose this data is encrypted and it goes to Spider Oak and it goes to Ice Drive as well as three different external hard drives. Right. So that stuff has like it would be a miracle of the bad kind if I lost that. But that data set is about two terabytes out of the entire pool. Because I couldn't like you, I couldn't afford to do that uh for my entire set. So you need to really think about which data is the most like irreplaceable for you? Yeah, that's good. Good info. Could you put a link to that device that you're talking about? Noah? Yeah, yeah, the MediaSonic Probox. Yeah, absolutely, I can do that. Um, so there's yeah. that. Then, then the other thing is, uh, you know, you can always you can always just repurpose a spare PC, and uh, if if uh, if LVM makes you uncomfortable, you know, do it with ZFS. In fact, in a lot of ways, that would be preferable because if you have uh, true NAS or ZFS running as your file server, then you can use ZFS send and uh, and and zip it right over. Okay, thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah, you bet. If, uh, if it, whether it works or not, give us a call back. Let us know. We'd like to hear back. Again, eight fifty five four fifty no. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. 
Our pick of the week this week is the note binder. So this, uh, from all I can tell, is, is, is somebody's personal project. But the note binder is a note organizing program designed specifically to keep notes well organized. Now, the author of this program took a unique approach. He was previously a Windblows user and in the process of switching over to Linux realized he really missed one application that was available on Windows but wasn't available on Linux, and that was OneNote. And the thing he liked about OneNote was it allowed him to organize uh, in, in a hierarchy system all of the resources for a particular notebook or a particular thing. Where he thought it lacked some functionality was not all of the things related to a thing are one file type. So maybe your notebook isn't comprised of entirely markdown files or entirely text files or entirely drawing files. What if it was a mixture of pictures and videos and maybe even esoteric applications that opened with a proprietary program? What do you do about those kind of files? They're all related to the project or the thing that you're working on, and you still want them all organized together. So that's where the note binder comes in. So the the the, the program, it creates a note organizing system that can launch a bunch of different applications. Notebooks are then represented as directories containing a collection of files, notes, and sections. Those files, notes, sections, and directories can be later broken down into in further classifications. So the note binder is, or, is an organizing program to keep notes well organized. And with the way that this application functions, one could even call it a file manager because in a lot of ways it's replicating the same kind of thing that you might do if you had a file manager open. Uh, this is obviously much more robust as it relates to doing notes, though. He says it's not a good substitute for just a plain file manager because it's primarily geared towards organizing information and being able to organize information easily. The functions of this program are to keep notes organized, and this application is the right tool for the right job as it's able to organize files of different file types as well as uh, not only can it organize and read them, but it also has a note opener as well, which makes the note binder a powerful tool for organizing notes that can be indirectly used to create new notes as well. So this, the timing of this coming onto my radar is somewhat spectacular because I've just recently fallen in love with VS Codium. Um, and I found that uh, all of these other workflows that I was participating in were all over the place and kind of sporadic. And VS Codium allowed me a graphical interface to kind of pull them all together into one place. The note binder kind of takes that to a next level, right? Because now not only am I just organizing markdown files and notes, but I'm also able to organize all of the other files on my Linux system. And is particularly in my line of work, I'm walking into all sorts of different clients with all sorts of different infrastructure and all sorts of different needs for their various projects. And so the ability to take one thing, one application and have it kind of rule them all quite spectacular. I'm pretty I'm pretty happy about that. So the the uh, the application is called the Note Binder. We'll have links for you in the show notes. From the Linux Newswire newsroom. This is the Week in Review with JT. The Academy Software Foundation released a new research paper titled Open Source and Entertainment: How the Academy Software Foundation Creates Shared Value. The 45-page document, available as a free-to-download PDF, spans the evolution of open source technology in the modern filmmaking era and features interview content from 17 industry veterans and rising leaders who have shaped its trajectory. Cloudera and StreamNative have announced that the code to integrate Apache NiFi with Apache Pulsar is now open source. The integration could be a boon for companies looking to simplify the development of real-time applications atop streaming data workflows and could provide another competitor to Apache Kafka and Confluent. Two new Spectre vulnerabilities have been reported and affect both x86 and ARM. Branch History Injection, or BHI, and Intramode BTI have both been announced by Intel, and kernel patches have already been released. OpenZFS has released version 2.1.3, which includes some bug fixes, which bring about compatibility for the Linux kernel 5.16. Arch Linux has celebrated its 20th birthday last week. Code Verify is an open-source browser extension that now allows users to verify that the WhatsApp code in their browsers is authentic. LF Energy, which is part of the Linux Foundation, aims to provide a neutral collaborative space to develop open-source tools that will help ease the transition to electric mobility through an open-source stack for EV charging infrastructure. And lastly, UCLA adopts PyGears, an open-source framework for AI chip design. 
So Pine 64 is introducing the Quartz Pro 64. So this is a new single board computer based on the Rockchip's powerful RK3588 SOC. This is the first pro-grade SBC since the introduction of the Rock Pro 64. So the initial cost is, in my opinion, a little high here. It's going to be 300 bucks, uh, actually north of 300 bucks, and initially will only be available available to developers via a coupon system. Um, so what you get for that 300 plus dollars is 16 gigs of RAM, 64 gigs of expandable eMMC storage. And I'll, there is part of me that loves the fact that single board computers are becoming more prevalent and there are more places that are making them and they are trying to fill more niches. All of that I think is absolutely fantastic and wonderful and great and all of the things. The, what concerns me is we have industrial grade computers and have had industrial computers for a long time. Um, and you can purchase them and put them into all sorts of working environments where single board computers have been appealing to me is in the hobby space or in the lower budget space. When you're trying to either do something at a massive a horizontal scale where you need a bunch of things to do the to, to accomplish the task or the ability to get a bunch of kids or people who wouldn't ordinarily have access to those kinds of things access to them it also allows the opportunity to do projects and in and and put technology where otherwise technology wouldn't exist and so i've i've said from day one and i continue to maintain that i think i usually see about a twofold value factor that we get delivered from Pine. So if they're charging $300, I'm guessing I'm going to get a $600 worth of computing. That has been my experience with the Pine Book Pro. It's been, or excuse me, the Pine Book, the Pine Book Pro, the Pine Phone. We'll see when my Pine Phone Pro arrives. Um, but every time I've ordered something from them, I've purchased something from them, I've always felt like I've got more from them than what I actually paid for. Um, but at $300 plus, that makes this a pretty expensive single board computer. Pipewire uh, last year began with a a lot of work on their Bluetooth front. And Steve, I, I was really happy to hear that they spent some time focusing on this because we hear all the time people say that they're having trouble with Bluetooth, uh, particularly on Linux. And the more algorithms that we try to support and the more devices that we try to interface with, the more that this becomes problematic. So throughout the year, the, 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 pl the plug-in, evolved to become one of the, the best, if not the best, open source Bluetooth audio stack implementations out there. And based on this extensible plugin architecture, Pipewire already supports all of the audio profiles and codecs. And so they say it's future proof, enabling it to be integrated with other stacks like Ophono. And it's a solid base for any Bluetooth audio use case. Then in April, uh, Fedora 34 became the first Linux distribution to ship Pipewire as its default audio service. And that meant that Pipewire was there before as a video transport service, but now they were able to, and they, that, that, that allowed them to enable screen sharing and, and so on and so forth with things like Wayland. But the addition of the audio layer meant that, that by default, all of Pipewire's uh, capabilities were exposed. And this led to a significant number of improvements as people started banging on it and playing with it and understanding what it was capable of and saying, hey, could we do this? Could we change this? Could we fix this? All of a sudden, a lot of issues began to become fixed and they were able to improve the experience of several users. Now, uh, Collabora worked with getting WirePlumber ready to become the default session manager for Pipewire. And so with version 0.4, the release that came out in June, WirePlumber introduced basically all of the elements needed to lay all of this out. And so they have done this with Lua scripting, uh, with a Lua scripting engine. And that made it possible to write most of the session management logic in a relatively simple scripting language. That scripting language then becoming available uh, became so much easier for everybody else to kind of sync up around and, uh, get all of the policy logic and uh, Pipewire media session in order to replace Pulse Audio. It also allowed them to maintain the embedded policy that automotive grade Linux uses with much more ease. And then finally, uh, after a intense bug fixing session in October, WirePlumber was made the default Pipewire session manager in Fedora 35. And that was shortly followed by some other major Linux distributions that had started to use Pipewire for audio in the meantime. Um, also in October, WirePlumber was made 
So the latest update of Pipewire 0.3.48 and WirePlumber 0.4.8 added a Bluetooth profile for auto switching support. And what that means is if you have a Bluetooth headset that has the HSP HFP profile and you're, you go to make a, a phone call, and, and but you're listening to music, it will automatically switch to the HSP profile let you make your phone call, do all of the things. Then when you come back to streaming music, it'll go back to your A2DP profile after that call is end. And so they're starting to focus on 2022 and have plans and designs to improve Wire Plumber as well as experiment with new things. On the short-term horizon, they, and I quote, we have plans to rework some parts of Wire Plumber in order to make its configuration more user-friendly and the scripts easier to work with. We're also planning to revisit the policy logic and try to get a step beyond what Pulse Audio has offered. In addition, we're looking forward to experimenting with complex cameras to improve how Pipewire and Libra Camera work together in an optimal user experience. So exciting stuff moving forward with Pipewire. I don't know, Steve, have you had a chance to to play with it or have you noticed any difference um, with Pipewire or kind of hanging back? no i'm i'm still hanging back i'm one of those guys that even though i i really like arch i'm still on x like i'm gonna use my desktop the way that i'm used to using it for the last decade give or take um i'm i'm looking forward to pipewire but i'm also not going to disrupt my current mm, let's say flow i spend Mm. all day troubleshooting with clients and stuff like that and it's like like you say all the time in our private conversations, the shoemaker's kids has the worst shoes. <laughs> you know, like at the end of the day, I want to go and press play and have my Steam games launch and not wonder where the heck my audio is gone. You know what the and, last thing I feel like doing after fixing people's computers all day? Yeah, exactly. So uh, that ties into Pipewire because if it rolls down the pipe for me, so to speak, uh, and it becomes the default inside of Arch, sure, I'll adopt it. But until that time, I'm not going to go out of my way to um, shoehorn it in is not the right term, but you know, put it, take out a, an existing thing that I've had a lot of experience kind of troubleshooting for something that I don't know anything about. Yeah, there's also, there's a number of things that Pulse Audio has done for me that I'm I are 100% capable of doing in 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 Pipewire. I just haven't had the time to sit down and figure it out. So uh, 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 just a quick example, I have my Volumio system that's in my house and Volumio is able to actually expose uh you can separate the Pulse Audio client from the server. And so what that allows me to do is it allows Volumio to show up as an extra audio interface on my computer so I can be sitting in bed and uh, open up my laptop and tell it, hey, you're going to send all your audio out over to Volumio, which is then downstairs and connected to a rack and in the amp and all the things. And it comes out the speakers in my bedroom. Um, and it's just it's a nice wireless way for me to connect my laptop. Now, again, is that possible in Pipewire? 100% it is. Does Noah know how to do it off the top of his head? No. So I, I, I've, like you, I've kind of hung back on, on my personal systems. Where I have started to play with Pipewire and where I've gotten very excited about it is in production um, because it's built for that. And it's built to do uh, media production and to take a lot of the headaches out of what is uh, what is what can currently be kind of a pain. So a huge thanks to the Pipewire team for, for all of the effort. Gnome 42 has a new release candidate out. So this added the, in, in the latest release candidate, um, they added the ability to take screenshots of the current window with shift print screen. Uh, they added the ability to switch workspaces with the home and end keys in activities overview. They added the ability to cancel ongoing update downloads and download uh, in the download in the GNOME Software Center when the system power is too low. They've defaulted to the G722 as the preferred codec for SIP calls in the new GNOME Calls app. They've improved GNOME Bluetooth, which will allow GNOME Shell's Bluetooth menu to appear when expected and connect and switch to an available Bluetooth LE mini devices. And GNOME boxes receive the ability to recommend the latest operating system release for downloads when they're available in osinfo-db. They also brought back the fingerprint dialogue in the GNOME Control Center's user accounts page. Now, I'm going to ask, Steve, have you ever had the fingerprint reader on a Linux machine to where you could just open up the user control panel, enroll the fingerprint, and then it just worked? No. Okay. Um, 
I I used Fedora for quite a while where it was mostly okay, but you know what? I guess I'll come to Linux's defense here and say the I have a I have a Nexus phone. Um, I don't know. It's it's one Nexus of the newer 5? ones. I oh. uh, I don't even remember what it's called anymore. But doesn't I have a Pixel phone? I've, I think I have the Pixel three or something like that. But the point is, is that like it's only a couple of years old, and I'd say at least. 20% of the time, the fingerprint reader just doesn't work. <laughs> like it fails enough that it just locks me out. So uh, in fairness, I think fingerprints are hard to do. I know that Apple does a, a better job at this, but yeah, I've not had great experience with fingerprint readers on any Linux kernel based device, I suppose. I, I haven't either. And I, I it's actually gotten to the point to where if I have somebody who has a fingerprint reader and they ask me, I'll ask them how important it is that they really want it to work because I've had it to where we go to try to get the fingerprint reader to work. And in the process of doing all the steps and, and installing the requisite software and making the requisite configuration changes, we bork the system. And that, I've had that happen more than a couple of times. So I, 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 I've tend to shy away from it, but that's not to say that there aren't people that would really, really like that. And so that is a huge thank you to the GNOME team for continuing to work on this because it would be really great for people to be able to go into GNOME Central Control or Control Center and go open up the user accounts page and just enroll their fingerprint and be able to unlock their laptop with their fingerprint. I think there's a lot of people that would that would that would like that. I would also go out a little bit on a limb and say um, that the uh, is it is it FIDO2 standard? What's the new uh, U2F standard? Uh, yeah, it is FIDO2. Um, the W3C has started to move uh, towards FIDO2 standard, which the idea is that we have something inside of the computer, a device, um, that everything can leverage to authenticate to online services. And so I have played with this with my with the YubiKey, and it works flawlessly. So it's essentially passwordless logins to stuff. And the idea is if you have the something you have and the something you know, we can just do away with the password because I could just reset the password by having it sent to the something I have, my email. Um, and uh, rather than, and, and the something you know being the pin. If one of the things that they're looking at to implement the FIDO2 standard is what sort of authentication devices do we have built into the computer already that we can use. So it's not a far stretch to say that at some point they're going to look and say, well, we should be, if they're not already, we should be using these fingerprint readers that are built into the laptop. And that would be unfortunate if Linux were to fall behind there. So it it's, hasn't been a real uh, important thing to me in the past, but I hope that it, uh, it, I'm glad that the, to see that there is development and progress on it because I think it's something that will be well appreciated. KDE 5.92 is out. So the KDE project announced on Sunday the general availability of KDE Frameworks 5.92. So improvements come to things like Dolphin by the way of addressing bugs that made it crash when dragging files or folders over the top of the places panel, as well as when you're closing the create new file dialog in a remote location. You also now have the opportunity to drag a file or folder over an item in the places panel to open the respective location in the main view. In addition, the places panel item, un if the disk is unmounted, will automatically mount when you're dragging a file or folder over it. And KRunner got a, new f a few new features and improvements. It now has the ability to convert things like teaspoons and tablespoons to and from each other, as well as other units. And Spectacle, the screenshot, this blew my mind, Spectacle, the screenshot utility has been improved as well in KDE Frameworks 5.92 and now actually installs the popular OBS Studio screen recording and streaming software when using the install feature under tools record screen. So if I'm understanding this right, now, I've not played with uh, KDE 5.92. That's it's, it's on my very, very short list. Uh, if I'm understanding this right, they are using OBS Studio to do screen recording. And they looked over and said, well, we need to be able to do screen recording. We can just take a, a static screenshot. Well, here is an application that works just great to do that. We'll just have add the button to install that and then link to the ability to record screens. Do that underneath the hood. It's a fantastic way to utilize existing open source code to make something happen. I 
the I used to use uh, I think it was a simple screen recorder and uh, used it for a lot of tutorials and doing a lot of stuff and it, it was great because it was small lightweight and, and worked well um, but it was something else that I had to install lately because I already have OBS running on the machine it makes all the sense in the world to just use that so huge thanks if you're looking to give KDE a shot one of the cooler distributions out there is KDE Neon. So I'll give KDE Neon a plug, but what KDE Neon is, quite quite blunt, it's the latest and greatest KDE in with an Ubuntu base. So they take uh, they take an Ubuntu base, and um, I believe it's the LTS base, and stack the whatever the absolute latest version of KDE is on top of that, and then you can install it as a distribution run it very much like kubuntu but you're always using the latest version of kde so it's absolutely what i'll do to check out 5.92 and you should as well ssh guard on ubuntu 2004 so this is something that came across our radar ssh guard is very similar to usb guards we talked about that uh, in a previous episode and the idea here is that we're adding another layer of security onto in the case of usb guard the usb bus in the case of ssh guard uh, ssh sessions and it's an open source daemon that runs in the background and what it does is enhances uh, the security of ssh as well as other network protocols and so the way that it does that is it prevents brute force attacks so it will continually monitor and keep track and record of the system logs which helps in tracking the continuous login attempts or malicious activity once a suspicious activity has been detected it then immediately blocks the ip address using the firewall backend um, it can use pf it can use ip tables it can use ipfw um, after that, it will unblock the IP address after a set interval of time. But if you can, like, it's, let's say it's a malicious IP and it tries to reach in and nope, it's blocked. And then it comes back again and says, nope, it's blocked, nope, it's blocked, nope, it's blocked. After several attempts, it starts to add additional block time on there so that whoever it is, if you know that SSH guard is there after the first few failed attempts, you're going to stop and say, hey, something's not right. I'm not using the right password. I'm not doing something. Something's not right. And I know that I have SSH guard on there, so I don't want to lock myself out any further. You could just wait. The, you run the clock down and then go and, and, and SSH back in. If, on the other hand, though, you're actually an attacker and you're trying to come at this system, it will just continually stack on uh, extra time that the attacker has to wait and they don't understand what's happening. And so they, they further lock themselves out. Uh, several log formats such as raw log, uh, raw log file, syslog ng and syslog are supported. SSH guard as well as using an extra layer of protection for services such as postfix, sendmail, vs, ftpd, and including, of course, SSH. So you can learn more. We'll have a link for you in the show notes on SSH guard, but absolutely utility you'd want to check out. System76 making headlines with their open source keyboard. So they're calling it the launch. And the launch is System76's first mechanical keyboard, but they aim to make this the last keyboard that you'll ever need. It has swap, hot swappable mechanical switches. It has legends that won't fade, a durable build, and, and a pair of detachable cables. So this is a 10 keyless board and is designed from the ground up to be customized and to be built from you. It should come as no surprise to you that everything System76 does is open source. And so that includes everything from the chassis to the PCB. That includes the firmware that's on the device. And so what that allows you to do is because they have all sorts of configuration options as well as color schemes and stuff for the backlight, you have a, a, a virtually unlimited options in what you can do with the thing. Um, so the cost is $285 which if you're a keyboard snub like I am is that's not a crazy amount of money. The launch chassis and PCB design are, are again, because it's open source is they make the files available for modification. The board uses an open source QMK firmware that you can update uh, the launch through the pop OS firmware settings for the Linux vendor firmware service. It also has a software suite that you can download from System76 and you can customize uh, the keyboard. So you can do all sorts of things. I think one of the most unique things is what they're calling the split spacebar. 
So instead of having one long space bar that is a single mechanical switch underneath, the key is actually split into two distinct parts, one on the left and one on the right. And each one of those has its own mechanical switch and a pair of stabilizers. So if you want to, you just pull it out of the box and you use it just like you ordinarily would expect to use a space bar and it will work. Just the right half is going to go down, the left half is going to go down, but both of them function as a space bar. Now, what you're able to do is open up the uh, System76 software and reconfigure the keyboard so that one key does something else. So you could program it to do something like backspace. And then in that way, your thumbs are in a very accessible location and a key that ordinarily you have two fingers on, not very efficient, right? And you might have to reach to get that shift key or the backspace or whatever it is that you use. Now you can remap that key to one half of your space bar. Um, so kind of a unique take on it. They also have uh, a USB hub that is built into the thing. And if you're low on USB ports, it makes accessing them from the keyboard a lot easier. Um, it does require a USB A port. And I think they point that out because there's a lot of laptops now that are shipping only with C ports, <clears throat> Apple. But uh, once it's plugged in, the keyboard adds two USB C ports, uh, 3.2 Gen uh, two port, which will function up to 10 gigabits per second, two USB-A ports, a 3.2 Gen 2, which will function at 10 gigabits per second. And uh, the keyboard in uh, is in, in depth or height, I guess it is, is 1.3 inches. And again, you have the opportunity to program those keys and default functions. They also have layers. So you can do combinations if you're using the function key and you can open up the app and customize a, a second, third, and even fourth layer that will activate with different, uh, with different key combinations. So, I mean, a really, 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 really powerful keyboard. The only bad thing that I've seen, and not even a bad thing, just something that one person didn't like on the internet, uh, is that the keys are apparently very stiff. So you have to like a very clicky, uh, very tactile keyboard, but, a, I feel like to a degree you're not shopping for a mechanical keyboard if you don't like tactile clickiness, and B, you're not spending $300 on a keyboard if you're not interested in high-grade mechanical switches. Now, they're not using Cherry Switches. They have their own brand, and I don't have it in front of me in my show notes, but there's a different brand I'd not heard of, but apparently they are more clicky, and it requires more pressure than the typical uh, cherry switches. So I guess have that in mind, but I love the fact that it's an open source design top to bottom. Love the fact that I can do all of the things from Linux. Linux is treated as a first class citizen and uh, a keyboard's clearly designed for power users that want to, to get something extra out of that input device. So, Steve, I know you have a keyboard that, uh, is it Red Dragon that you're using? Yeah, I've got a, I like it. I like it quite a bit. It's, uh, it's quite heavy. It's a nice, heavy mechanical keyboard. I was looking at this one, the uh, System 76. I'm I'm not really sold on it, mostly because they're really trying to compact space together. Like I'm mm. the the look of it, the up, down, left, right arrows are right underneath the shift, and you know they've got the um, the home page up, page down, and end keys in a vertical alignment instead of kind of more spaced out, and it's missing the uh, the actual uh, keypad on the side. I actually really use the keypad. I, I miss it whenever I'm on a laptop that doesn't have it. Um, I don't know. I guess old habits die hard. But this keyboard looks a little more cramped for my liking. Yeah, that's fair. I, I use the key, the pin, the uh, the the number pad when I'm doing IP addresses uh, a lot. But other than that, I can live without it. I, I Because I mostly stick to 13-inch laptops, I fly a lot. And so working on anything larger than a 13-inch laptop in an airplane really hot really sucks so i i've, I've kind of gotten used to not having the, the 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 10 keypad but i can see what you're saying as far as cramped space elsewhere on the keyboard if you put those things aside does the configurability do anything for you do you look at that and say i would like having different layers to my keyboard and adding more functionality or is it is that just too cumbersome well so the problem that i have is the same problem i have when i go to adopt a new shell like fish or whatever since i'm mobile most of the time you know in the before time, I'm unlikely to be able to bring my own keyboard everywhere that I go, which means that then uh, I get this really fancy setup at, at home and I get to use it once a month. And then I'm, you know, I'm get used to using a traditional keyboard wherever I'm at again. And then I come back and I've remapped something somewhere or the layout is different. And then that just slows me down. Have I told you about MVBS? 
I don't know. It's an after show discussion, I guess. It's a secret. <laughs> but I, I don't, <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, I, I think it's a cool, it's absolutely a cool design. It's really cool what System 76 is doing. The, mostly what I appreciate about System 76 is that they are a Linux first company. I've seen that firsthand. I've experienced that. You will experience that if you interact with them at any level. Um, they, they will only do something if they can do it on Linux. And so the fact that there's now a keyboard uh, and they, they, this is the first product that they've done that is cross-platform, that they've intentionally uh, gone out of their way to make sure that it's functional across macOS, Linux, and Windows. But it's a Linux citizen first, and that's always appreciated. Hey, uh, we'll wrap up by talking about a software called Barrier. Barrier is an alternative, uh, almost a fork of uh, synergy. And so barrier is software that mimics the functionality of a traditional KVM switch in which you can choose. You can use a single keyboard and a single mouse and a single monitor, but you can control multiple machines by choosing which machine you're trying to control. And barrier does all this in software, allowing you to tell which machine you want to control by moving your mouse to the edge of the screen or by using a key press to switch to a different system. Now, barrier was fork. So I guess it's not like a fork. It is a fork of uh, Synergy and Synergy was commercialized and re-implemented of the original Cosmos Synergy written by Chris Showman. Um, so Barrier aims to maintain that simplicity, the original simplicity that came with Synergy. And Barrier will let you use your keyboard and your mouse from one computer to control other computers. Clipboard sharing is also supported. And uh, the, the th one of the things that, that, that caught my eye about this is the people who are writing barrier are the people that use it. And so uh, they're eating their own dog food. Quote, we are users too. Barrier was created so that we could solve the issues that we had with Synergy and then share these fixes with other users. Um, they want to make it work on more than one operating system and they use more than one operating system. So uh, it works with macOS, it works with Windows and it works with Linux and FreeBSD. Barrier should just work, quote unquote. We'll also have our eye on Wayland when the time comes. Everything we do is in the open. Our issue tracker will let you know if others are having the same problem as you are having and will allow you to add additional information. You'll also be able to see when progress is made and how the issue gets resolved. Steve, would you ever use one of these uh, KVM sharing utilities or no use slash uh, security concerns? I used Synergy for years. I even paid for Synergy because I thought it was that good. Okay. Um, I anymore. I don't need this functionality because essentially when I'm home, my laptops get shut down and I mm. don't have anything else that I need to have actual, like a graphical desktop for. Sure. So, uh, it, it became less useful to me now as before I had tons of, I had one tiny area in my apartment and all of the computers sat there regardless of whether it was the media center or whatever because that's what it was so it made it very useful for me in the past but anymore i haven't had a need for it well if you do have a need for it it, it looks like the legacy continues this is all being done as open source we'll have a link for you in the show notes as always you can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com hey the music in our ears means we're out of time we record the show every Tuesday at 6pm central we invite you to join us live asknoahshow.com you can catch all of the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com have a good week we'll see you next week 